Hello, and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and today we are spoiling Hereditary, the new horror film from the first-time writer-director Ari Aster. Here to talk with me about the film are freelance writer and friend of the podcast, Rachel Syme. Hi, Rachel. Hi. We saw this movie a few nights ago, and you're still traumatized, I gather. Yes, Dana made me go to this, but I'm actually very grateful to her. I made you go because I was scared to go myself, but the fact is... Yeah, you needed a buddy. Yeah, but I, I think I took it better than you did in terms <laughs> yeah. of getting back to sleep afterwards. I'm also joined today by Lena Wilson. Hi, Lena. Hi, Dana. Lena is a former Slate intern. You actually just left Slate, yes, right? quite recently. And so you're freelancing too now and out writing on stuff, including this movie, Hereditary. Including this movie, yes. And the last time we saw each other, we were dueling together on the Slate Culture Cab Fest. We were sucking on mango-flavored zip drives or whatever they are. Yeah, Dana and I vape together. So that's that's our history. <laughs> We've been through a lot. Maybe not as intense as hereditary, but pretty intense. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, I, what I want to do first is go around and just get a sort of thumbnail sketch of your reaction to this movie. Essentially, would you send a friend if that friend was able to tolerate horror movies in the first place? And because this is a horror movie and kind of an intense one, I also want to hear just your general background with horror. So Lena, I will start with you. Yeah, so um, my critical position is Generally, that horror is my favorite genre, if, ah. if not one of my favorite genres, um, just because I think it is doing the most interesting and subversive things um, consistently, um, in, especially not only in terms of representation and final girls and messiness, gender and sexuality wise, um, but also just in terms of form and sound. And I think this movie is an especially great example of that. Um, but that said, I am kind of a wimp and... All of the emotional trappings of movies work on me a thousand percent all the time. Um, so I like fully almost had a panic attack in the theater watching this movie. Um, I actually watched it next to Slate video editor Jeff Bloomer, um, who is notoriously cool as a cucumber all the time. And I had to pretend to be also that and was failing miserably. My notes from the first screening of this I saw were basically just journaling so that I, um, didn't freak out <laughs> outwardly. Um, literally, it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's I contain multitudes. Well, as, as the movie shows us, repressing your feelings leads to bad things. So you and you, I think you're ahead of Jeffrey in that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that game. True. OK, Rachel, what about you? Recommend this movie or not? And what's your horror movie stance? I would definitely recommend this movie, Dana. I thought it was beautiful. I will say my tolerance for horror movies is very low, as you experienced in the theater when I said I hate this out loud <laughs> at some point in the movie. And I knew, I somehow knew that your I hate this didn't mean I hate this movie. It meant like I can't tolerate this experience for one more second. It was right after a certain scene that I'm sure we will talk about soon that I think a lot of people talk about as the scene that turns everything in the movie. And I just felt so sick to my stomach. And again, it's not in that horror way um, where you're seeing so much gore and violence, you know, like Saw or something where you feel like you're being actively tortured. It was much more subtle psychological depths of grief. Like, uh, I remember somebody said to me about this movie, um, you know, it's not necessarily scary, but it will make it so that you're not happy for about three or four days <laughs> after you've seen it. Like, the soul will just have been sucked out of your body. And that's kind of how I felt. I mean, my, my background with horror is that I've only very recently been able to watch it. When I was a little kid, I was really anxious. I was an anxious child. And so when I would see horror movies, I would stay up not just for a night, but for 
days at a time. So then by the time the week was over, I was like a child in a horror movie. <laughs> I had these sunken eyes. I would just wander into my parents' bedroom at 4 a.m. and just say, just so you know, there's a demon in my room. I just think you should know. I was really <laughs> calm about it. I'm sure I was acting like the omen. You have to sing reedy little nursery rhymes to make it complete. Right. I would and sit suddenly on my you're parents' British bedroom, or something. <laughs> bedroom floor for weeks. I mean, it was terrible. So I really couldn't um, watch horror until very recently. And um, my boyfriend has been trying to get me more into the genre. He's made me see sort of the old Giallo films, the kind of like almost camp horror that that. And then we've been seeing a lot of stylish horror films like It Follows. And, you know, I've been getting more into it. Um, but still in the theater, my initial reaction is total panic. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think if you really are someone who just cools a cucumber, consumes anything without blinking an eye, I don't know that to me that seems like taking the most pleasure out of horror. Like, shouldn't part of it be that feeling of I hate this and I have to turn away? I mean, my own feeling about it, I think, is something like, yeah, maybe a little bit more like mm, not my favorite genre, like Lena, but somewhere balanced in between. Like, I understand the cathartic impulse. Mm -hmm. I understand why horror is necessary, why it does something that no other film genre really does. Stephanie Zaharik, in her review of this movie, Hereditary, had some really beautiful things to say about that, where she was essentially trying to bring people into the fold. And she mentions Dario Argento saying, you know, that this is a style, it's a language. And, you know, if you really sort of want to have a comprehensive, if you love film and you want to have this, you know, full experience of what film can bring you, like give horror a chance. And I think this is one of those movies that makes that argument in a way. And yet at the same time, there I have some pretty negative things to say about about it. So, okay, so let's get into spoiling itself. Let's set up how the movie begins. So we are in a place that's never named, but that seems to be a kind of country town, maybe in the Northeast. I think they filmed it in Utah, is what I heard. But I don't think that you're supposed to know that it's Utah. It just looks like one of those places in the West. I mean, I'm from New Mexico. Um, but when they were driving in this movie, and there was just miles without streetlights, and it just looked like the sprawling West, I thought it could be more like big sky country, Idaho, Montana, something like that. Oh, interesting. I guess because of the sort of deciduous forests and like lack of Western vegetation specifically, I pictured it being the Northeast also because they were Me just too. so so waspy. Right. Mm -hmm. I right? got like upstate vibes. Mm. But but I think the placelessness is kind of important to the movie, right? It takes place sort of in a in an unidentified, unmarked time and space, and uh, and we have this family living in this somewhat remote house in the woods. And actually, the very first shot you see in the movie is of a dollhouse, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Because this important theme is that the main character Annie, who's played by Tony Collette, the mother, is an artist, and the kind of art she does is miniatures, making mm -hmm. little miniatures that essentially enact even before the traumas of this movie start happening. They enact her past traumas, and uh, and she seems to be a successful artist. She's getting calls from this gallerist who's pushing her to finish this new exhibit, and we see her building this house. But the fact that the very first image you see is a room with a boy sleeping in it that then, you know, does this almost Disney-like thing, the way that cartoon images would turn into real images, right, or, mm -hmm. or vice versa. We move in, and then it becomes the real world, and it's the boy that's sleeping is her son. So, I mean, in a way, there's an argument to be made that this whole movie takes place in someone's imagination or in a dollhouse or in, you know, in a, in a place that's less than the real world. Right. Uh, so then the setup becomes uh, Tony Collette is the mother. Gabriel Byrne is her husband. They have two kids, a teenage boy named Peter, who's played by Alex Wolf. He's probably supposed to be 16, something like that. Mm -hmm. And a daughter who's 13, played by Millie Shapiro. Um, Charlie. Wanna, Charlie, right. Charlie. Um, all right. I don't want to be the sole explainer. So if anybody wants to pick up the baton and talk next, the very first thing that happens besides us entering the dollhouse world is that we become aware that Tony Collette's mother has died. We never see her as a living character in the movie. 
Yes, you learn that her mother, Ellen, um, had been living with them in their house for the past few years and had just passed away. Um, but that before Ellen came to live with Annie, they had been somewhat estranged um, years before. Uh, and, you know, that she has a completely complex relationship with her mother, who seemed to be a very secretive and s- sort of domineering person at the same time. Yeah, she gives a eulogy to her mother very early on. We see the funeral, and uh, and she says something like, "My mother had a lot of secrets, right?" Or my mother had private a lot of private rituals. Private, private rituals. Yeah, um, there's like some implied like emotional abuse that has happened between them. I would say um, she definitely is very. She's definitely learned to repress basically her entire childhood. You can sort of tell. Um, I would credit that mostly to Tony Collette's like jaw dropping performance in this film. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, throughout, she's just sort of vibrating with emotion throughout the entire movie until she bursts. Um, but in the funeral scene in particular, she's implying, I don't know, she's sort of like it feels wrong to even be speaking about my mother's life. She was so private. She specifically says um, she had private rituals, private friends, private anxieties. Um but then she also says that, like, she could be, like, very warm. Um, so So it is sort of this... Uh, balance between like polite funeral talk and having grown up with this woman who sort of seems monstrous to a certain extent um, and not just because she later embodies supernatural monstrosity um, but actually the first shot in the film is her obituary um, mm. which oh you're right before you see the dollhouse you see a kind of printed legend that explains her well, it's literally her obituary. Oh, is yeah. it supposed to be taken from the newspaper? It is. It's just a newspaper obituary. Yeah, it's like survived by, yeah. um, et cetera. And then you get more information very quickly in the film when Tony Collette decides to go to a grief group therapy um, session. And lies to her husband about it. Yeah, she says she's going to the movies, which I think <laughs> is very interesting in the context of a, of a movie. And pretty on the nose script-wise. And then she lived in our house at the end before our hospice. We weren't even talking before that. I mean, we were, and then we weren't. And then we were. She's completely manipulative until my husband finally enforced a no contact rule, which lasted until I got pregnant with my daughter. I didn't let her anywhere near me when I had my first, my son, which is why I gave her my daughter, who she immediately stabbed her hooks into. And I just, I felt guilty again, I felt guilty again. When she got sick, not that she was really even my mom at the end, and not that she would ever feel guilty. I just don't want to put any more stress on my family. Charlie was the kid that her mother got her hooks into right. and sort of raised herself, which is quickly cut into another dollhouse miniature scene where you see that um, possibly her own mother breastfed her baby. Right. It's there seems to be the way the figures are set there. up. I, I kept thinking of that image, too. The way that image is set up seems to imply that, yeah, at least her mother tried mm-hmm. to kind of take her baby away and breastfeed it. And and then it is implied that whether that happened or not, that the grandmother and, and Charlie were quite close. Right. Because also early in the movie, you see that Charlie seems to be the most affected by the grandmother being gone. Tony Collette's character and her son both talk about not feeling grief and feeling guilt about not feeling grief, Mm -hmm. right? Gabriel Byrne, we never really know what he's feeling, right? He's the most even-keeled of the family, and you don't really get a glimpse into his interiority. But Millie Shapiro's character, the little girl Charlie, seems to be 
distressed by her grandmother's death and starts to do all these strange behaviors, which makes you think for the first 20 minutes or so that this is going to be your classic possessed evil demon child movie Mm -hmm. because she does things like cut the head off a wild bird and put it in her pocket. She makes these strange little toys, which sort of echoes her mother's doll making and house making, but she's kind of putting together things into these creepy little toys. It looks like outsider art. What she's making. It's right. very, yeah, it's it's almost like folk art. She's putting sticks together into people with electric wires and, you know, the heads of found animals and, you know, dried plants from the forest. It's all very sylvan and strange what yeah. she's doing in her bedroom. Yeah, both that and the art that Tony Collette's character is supposed to be making is really good. Whoever they got to make those miniatures did a good job making them convincingly creepy. Yeah. I do also want to quickly circle back to the grief support group before we go any further with this crazy plot, um, just because in her sort of here's all my family trauma monologue, uh, she specifically name checks DID, um, dissociative identity disorder, formerly known as multiple personality disorder, um, which I thought was very significant to me just because Tony Collette's most praised role before this one was on the United States of Tara, where she plays Tara, a mother, um, a very flawed mother uh, who has been diagnosed with DID herself. Um, so just Metatextually, I thought that was delicious, but also in terms of the ways in which this movie pathologizes um, her family history, I think is very interesting. We later learn that it may or may not matter um, in the world of the movie, but yeah, I I I like. I like the way that seed was sown. Yeah. Well, I mean, the whole the whole co- complex of mental illnesses that bears on this family is so overdetermined. There's not really any way. I mean, we'll get into the whole occult plot that rises up in, in tandem with that. But there's no way to turn this movie, even though it's called hereditary, into sort of simple genealogy of the problem. Right? Mm. You can't oh, sort yeah. of say it started here when this person did this and then it passed down. Right. It's sort of like. Everything is passing down and crisscrossing. I mean, in that sense, it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, of Annihilation, mm. you know, which is also a movie about sort of crisscrossing traumas where it's 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 hard to locate the original. Okay, so let's get into the, the fate, the horrible fate of Charlie. Yes, this is one of those moments where a movie takes a completely unexpected early plot twist, which I really respect. It's sort of like Janet Lee's character dying in Psycho. I mean, right. it's still rare for that ha- to happen in movies. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Let's talk to about what happens to Charlie. Anybody want to take this one? I'll go for it because it so completely shocked me. And yes, exactly as you said, I think this was the moment when I realized I was basically going to be putty in this director's hands when this happened because I was completely not expecting it. So here's what it is. Uh, Peter is invited to go to a party uh, by one of his high school friends who we learn he smokes a lot of weed with under the bleachers and uh, it's just a you know get together among high school kids kind of a rager uh charlie is forced to go along with him by her mother her mother says you're going to this party we've all sort of felt this grief you need to get back out into the world you need to go with your brother to this party 
We also know uh, from an earlier scene that Charlie is allergic to nuts, that she has a nut allergy and that, you know, because Tony Collette mentions not having an EpiPen. So that's sort of a, you know, a Chekhov's EpiPen that's sort of seated and early in the thing. So here, Charlie and Peter are going to this party. Peter wants to ditch Charlie once at the party because he has a crush on a girl. And so he tells her to uh, go get a slice of chocolate cake, which we see um, being cut with a knife that was previously used around nuts. Do you want to pick up there? Yeah. So um, Charlie has the cake. It's unclear to me whether the walnuts were actually in the cake or, mm. or just the same knife was used. Um, but there's like very violent walnut chopping to introduce this party in case right. we weren't sure where it was going. Um, and Charlie goes into anaphylactic shock um, in this very sad, very pathetic way. Millie Shapiro like absolutely breaks my heart in this sequence. And Peter takes her in his car, speeds home, and she uh, puts her head out the window to try and get air Peter's about to hit a dead animal, and so he swerves off of the road, and the spot at which he swerves off happens to have, like, an electrical pole, and um, Charlie's head hits the pole, and she is decapitated by the force of the driving car and the pole. You don't learn that that is exactly what has happened until the next day. You just know that she has died, um, because Alex Wolf again, gives such an insanely visceral performance as a kid who has just caused the death of his sister unwittingly and has to swallow that and then go home to his parents. Yeah, and the way he plays it and the way Ugh. I guess the director blocks it is really incredible because he never turns around, right? Yeah. He looks in the rearview mirror very briefly. It's like a flick of the eye. And later there's a flashback where you see mm-hmm. the rearview mirror for and a second. And I mean, what we learn, you know, later, very quickly when Tony Collette is explaining what what she saw the next morning when she goes out to the car, which, to be honest, for me, is the most haunting scene of the movie still. Absolutely. Basically, the way you learn about Charlie's death is that Peter comes home, slumps into the house and goes right to bed, says nothing. And the next morning you hear off camera or off screen Tony Collette saying, I'm going to go to the store. She goes out to the car and you just hear the most blood curdling scream for what she's discovered, which we found out later is a headless body of her daughter in the back seat. We find that out because there is a grisly prosthetic decapitated child head that comes up on screen. But not right then, right? I mean, I think Rachel's yes, right, right that then. you, you, you yeah. see it right then. It When you hear her scream, it cuts to Ooh. her head. It's uh, Yeah, and it's actually, it's not like, when I first saw the movie, I've seen it twice. When I first saw it, I thought that the head was like in their driveway, but it's actually on the side of the road and you see like cars it's coming by. It's a flash by. to what's been left behind. Exactly. Out there. And you, yeah, it's, it's covered it's, in maggots and ants. It's horrible. And then you, which is of course one of the moments of the film that really is quite classic horror. The shock. It was, it's, it's a jump scare to yeah, see that Yeah, that head. is the first real shock cut. I would say that, I don't know, even for horror, like there are, there are t- taboos of horror that I think even this film breaks because child decapitation is is huge. And that's part of the reason I'm so excited to spoil this film is because like that is when everything just absolutely takes off running. And to try and talk about this film with other people and not say the words child decapitation is like so hard. Yeah, right. and I'm it's hard, hard to, to recommend to review it, to... it actually for that reason to have right. to tiptoe around that. Right. It's hard to recommend it to people when you say child decapitation <laughs> right. out loud. But I will say that what happens quickly after Tony Collette finds the body is one of the most disturbing things I've seen, which is that she is just racked with grief and she's on the floor of her bedroom saying i want to die i want to die i can't go on i just can't it hurts too much i mean you know you get this you don't the scariest part of the entire thing is you actually don't see charlie's death but you see the immediate aftermath 
on the mother. And it is so heartbreaking. I mean, I was like crying and shaking when that was happening. It's And and, and what's horrifying for the viewer also is you realize this isn't the climax of the movie. This is about 20 no, minutes in. The exposition. <laughs> right. But there is kind of, in a way, a, a lull in the horror after that because a lot more stuff has to be set up. And the rhythm of this movie I appreciate is that it is it doesn't just keep on climbing to more and more climaxes after that. Right. right. Then it kind of returns. In fact, it's about returning to normal life. Then Everything gets back to, quote, normal. And uh, and you start to notice that this family is very strange in the way they handle grief. I mean, maybe we all are. But, right, we already saw them repressing the grief about the grandmother. But she seems to have been this distant and scary and somewhat estranged figure. But after Charlie's death as well, with the exception of Tony Collette, who goes to this grief support group, Everyone just carries on and doesn't really talk about it. Yeah, I think the Grams could give like the royal family a run for their money in terms of like emotional suppression. Um, it's like truly impressive. Um, after before Charlie ever even dies, um, there are seeds sown for this. Um, I think it's very interesting. The film sort of divides the family into gender for like, how are your emotions doing today, kids? In the exposition where Annie talks to Charlie and. Um, Steve, her husband, talks to Peter and they're like, how did you feel about the funeral? Um, and both of the kids are just kind of like, like they don't want to talk about it. Um, and you very quickly learn where they got that from, um, especially when Steve Gabriel Byrne's character gets a phone call from um, the plot that is housing uh, Annie's mother's body. And the phone call is basically like, desecration, what does that mean? It's only been a week. And then he like hangs up and lies immediately to Annie about that call. And I'm like, you're not even talking to your wife about the grave desecration of her mother. Um, Like, I understand like pacing for grief and everything. But that to me was like an immediate um, like an earmark. Was that after Charlie died or before Charlie died? It was before. Yeah. And, you know, what you expect to get right after Charlie dies and you see Tony Collette, Annie's pain is the next kind of working out of the grief among the family members. What happens to Peter after he inadvertently causes his sister's death? How is he coping with it? How is the dad coping with it? And you don't get any of that. It's so shocking. It just sort of moves on to a few weeks ahead and everyone is suppressed what's happened and Peter is still coming home. He's biking. He's not driving a car. And they're having dinner together as a family and you feel like, you know, you're robbed of those conversations that probably happened around you know, the details of the accident? Well, I would disagree. I would say what's most interesting about that sequence is, or about the entire family dynamic following Charlie's death is what is not said. And Mm -hmm. I think that the film is very explicitly not producing those conversations because, frankly, the family isn't even having them. Well, that's what I figured out. Um, Later, I realized, oh, they probably didn't even have those conversations. You learn the details of the accident through Annie talking to a new friend that she makes. Right, we should probably bring her in. So we should probably bring her in. The actress Anne Dowd shows up, and I always like to say when Anne Dowd shows up, you know that it's not going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she shows up in The Leftovers and Handmaid's Tale, and you just – stuff goes down when Anne Dowd walks on screen. So the minute she knocks on Annie's car – so Annie drives up to the support group again again, after Charlie's death – And is hesitating to go in, doesn't really think she can face it this time. And she gets a knock on her car window. And it's this woman, played by Anne Dowd, who introduces herself as Joan and tells Annie that her own uh, son and grandson had recently drowned and that she is coping with grief and that everybody needs a friend in times like this and gives Annie her number. 
Right. And it's it's a it it seems at first like a very comforting and warm interaction. Right. You think that maybe she's going to be the person who pulls her out, but no. No. Well, so she invites her over the first time and she sees this suspicious doormat that her mother may or may not have embroidered for her. But she's like, oh, my mother makes things like that. And Anne Dowd is very coyly like, oh, how interesting. Um, and that's like a fairly innocuous meeting. Um, but then she's buying art supplies later and Anne Dowd sees her in the parking lot and she is like manic, like so thrilled to see her um, because she has gone to this seance. You see a flyer for this seance actually put through the Graham's mail slot at one point or a mail slot at one point. So it's sort of uh, this, it's sort of like those things you see on the subway that are like, call me for psychic help. Right. You um, get the idea that a, a sort of a medium has come to town. Exactly. Um, and Anne Dowd's character Joni is like, um, you know, I, I did this and it worked. I promise. Like, I was skeptical. I was sitting next to a neurologist the whole time, which I'm so skeptical that I was immediately like actor. The neurologist was an actor. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, come on, and out. And um, debunking the seance that was not even in the movie. Yeah, literally. Um, and uh she is like, come home with me. I'll show you like right now. And Annie is kind of like so bewildered that she's like, uh, OK, sure. Um but, you know, everything that Joni has said does prove to be true because she summons the spirit of her seven-year-old deceased grandson. Um, and he, like, moves a glass that they are holding and, like, starts writing on a chalkboard. And Annie absolutely loses her mind. I mean, so do the viewers, I think. I mean, to me, that was an incredible moment because it's really the first time that something supernatural has happened in the right. movie. I mean, we're in a world where supernatural things seem like they might happen, but also, like, there's mental illness being signposted everywhere. And everything that's happened so far has been, you know, a, a realist event that could happen in well, the world. There are a few specters. Like, um, very early in the movie, Annie sees, like, the, a shadowy figure of her mother in the corner of her workshop and like turns off the lights and turns them back on and right, right. But, but completely I mean, readable as cinematic grammar for a ghost of grief. right yeah and before we get into the seance because one seance leads into another i think we need to just briefly circle back and just talk about a couple things that are going on with the family in the interim which is how they're each processing their grief and it's all very interesting we find out that annie has decided that she's going to make miniature of the actual accident which her daughter is killed which is a very strange impulse but she does it and she's making a very violent depiction of the scene peter is crying at school he's smoking pot with his friends under the bleachers and has a panic attack more or less well he it's implied that he maybe even goes into anaphylactic shock or thinks he is at yeah he's having sympathetic um, something. yeah oh, actually, can i just say that one of the scariest images for me because this is always something that freaks me out in horror movies anything that has to do with the language of mirrors being messed up the moment that he sees a reflective surface in his classroom and the reflection in it is smiling evilly at that's him that's later but that's yeah. when oh shit like, really yeah, that's, goes that's down. way later yeah. but but totally terrifying um and a couple other things are going on. Uh, Peter sees an apparition of his sister uh, appear in his bedroom. That's before, I think, before even the seance happens. I think that might even be just he thinks he does. Yeah, he thinks he does. He, and everybody's sort of seeing apparitions. Also, at the same time, Annie has gone um, through her mother's things that were kept in boxes and uh, has found a couple interesting uh, books. And those come into play a lot later, but she does find a note from her mother pretty early on that says, um, you know, dear Annie, I, we've all experienced so much loss, but in the end, the gains will have all been worth it or something like that. A very strange cryptic note left behind by yeah, her mother. Yeah, something like our in our sacrifices will pale in comparison with what we gain. Right, Lo love right. mommy. What a very <laughs> strange note. And then right before the seance, and then I'll finish and you guys can go into the big denouement, is um, 
a family fight that happens over dinner where uh, basically everything comes to a head that has been suppressed um, where they're having dinner and Peter uh, is asks his mom what's wrong because she's kind of pushing her food around and Annie explodes at her son. Yeah. I mean, before that, even the tension in the family has been built because uh, Steve walks in on Annie creating the crash scene and he says like jesus like do you want him to see that and she's like who and he's like peter and she's like it's not about him it's an objective observation of the accident or Mm -hmm. something along those lines so it's like the level of emotional disconnect between annie and peter at this point is insane and actually during her first meeting with uh and dowd's character Joni, you learn why that is is because annie used to sleepwalk and at one point she was sleepwalking And she woke up to find that she had covered herself and both her children in paint thinner and was about to immolate all of them, um, set them all on fire. She she awoke by striking the match. Um, So she was very close to murder, suiciding all of them. Um, And Peter, she says, like, never forgave her for that. It's been a tension in their relationship all along. Um, So then we go into this dinner and... Peter, like, you know, uh, Gabriel Byrne has said, like, is clearly mad at Annie for creating this scene, um, the decapitation artwork, and uh, (laughs) it's what it is. Um, And he's like, you know, come to dinner or don't. I don't give a shit, which I think is a very interesting sort of gender moment of her being the, like, callous, overworked parent and him being the, like, neglected domestic he's clearly the nurturer yeah. exactly he's for everybody he's sort yeah. of kindly he is very yeah he's the warmest person in the house oh. <laughs> i mean in, in a very cold house yeah um but yeah he's he's like come to dinner or don't i don't give a shit um and she does come to dinner and is very moodily eating and her son asks you know what's wrong do you want to talk about something and she immediately takes it as like this dig you okay mom What? Is there something on your mind? Is there something on your mind? It just seems like there might be something you want to say. Peter? Like what? I mean, why would I want to say something so I could watch you sneer at me? Sneer at you? I don't ever sneer at you. Oh, sweetie, you don't have to. You get your point across. Okay, so fine, then say what you want to say then. Peter. I don't want to say anything. I've tried saying Okay, things. so try again. Release yourself. Oh, release you, you mean? Yeah, fine, release me. Just say it. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. Do you understand? And it's that final, it's that catharsis that you wanted to see earlier, but it's horrifying because there's blame involved. She says, you know, am I supposed to relieve you of the blame for killing your sister? You know, it's a horrible thing to say, you know, and then she goes, I know it was an accident. I wish I could take the pain away from you. And then he immediately says she didn't want to be at the party, mom. Whose fault was that? So they're tossing back and forth this blame over the death of Charlie. It's so painful. There's so much pain in this family. Well, I mean, a very disturbing thing about this movie, of course, is that the family is not a place of safety or resolution or conflict resolution, right? I mean, there's no catharsis in these arguments. It's like they keep creating new 
bad feelings that become their own demons. Yeah, I think one of my favorite moments in the film actually is right before the second time when Annie goes to grief support group, she's waiting in her car um, for her family to be home so they don't see her leave. And so there's this shot of Peter uh, riding on his bike up to the house and he just stands in the uh, entryway to the house and clenches his fists and then like finally works up the resolve to like go into the house. And I think that's so symbolic of just how they're all coping with being around each other and being in that particular space. And like the space of the house is so important because of Annie's miniature work. And- right. And I was going to say, I think something so important is the the set dressing of this movie mm. and the way the house is shot and the way Astor shoots this house, which is always just the, in the most menacing way possible. The shots down every hallway are slow. Um, the house itself is this almost Frank Lloyd Wright-esque wooden structure with stained glass, almost as if they're being sort of in a jewel box themselves or living in a dollhouse themselves. They're being observed or watched or controlled by outside forces. It feels so sinister inside that house. Also, you know, it's the classic horror trope. The house is in the middle of the woods. It doesn't look like there are neighbors around for miles. It's just a completely menacing place. It's worth mentioning, I think, that it's a built set, and Esther has talked about that in interviews. I mean, the outside of the house is probably a house that already exists, but he wanted to do things in the hallways and shoot it in a way that you couldn't do in a closed house. So he built a set, which is a kind of old-fashioned thing to do. And I think that's part of what gives that house And there are locked rooms. You learn at the very beginning that Annie locks the room where her mother died. Um, She sees the door ajar and decides to just lock it. A very literal metaphor for her emotional repression exactly you know there's an uh you know an attic they don't go in um there's her workshop is pretty creepy too it's just full of all these um you know debris miniatures sort of paint and everywhere it's all very everything seems like secretive little furtive corners in this house yeah my other favorite thing about the house decor is that two of Annie's sculptures are in sort of the foyer. And um, one of them is like a pretty traditional looking house, but it always eerily has like lights on inside. And I, I couldn't tell whether the lights in the house came on towards the end when everything gets especially dark and creepy, or if I just noticed it more in those moments. Um, but I really appreciated that. And then there's another house sculpture that doesn't get as much attention from the camera but which is my favorite one which is a house that's sort of suspended on these like layers of like green and then there's another like house layer below it and another one below it and that's sort of in the corner next to their stairwell Mm -hmm. but when the entire family um goes downstairs for their own seance which i assume is the plot point we'll get to next there's a a very deliberate shot of sort of that layered house sculpture as they go down the stairs. Well, and don't forget, there's also one more house involved, which is the tree house. Oh, yes. Which is that, um, you know, Charlie's favorite place in the whole uh, estate was the tree house outside, which is a beautiful sort of birch tree house uh, in a, that can be seen outside the window of Peter's room. And Charlie would sleep up there, we learn often. And then after her death, Annie starts to sleep up there with a heating lamp, which sort of makes the entire tree house glow red um, outside Peter's window as well, sort of summoning her daughter in that way. She's sort of communing with her in the tree house. The tree right. house feels like a place that is very much Charlie's spirit. Right. And things converge on the treehouse later on in a freaky way. But so so let's get to the Graham family seance. After Annie learns how to summon the dead from Anne Dowd, right? Um, she goes back home. <laughs> as we all this, do. <laughs> right. As one does. Who doesn't? And she has these words, right? There's actual kind of gibberish. Yeah. One of the moments where the movie loses me is that like three different people are like, what language is that even in? Like, we get it. It's, <laughs> it's satanic. Yeah. It's definitely just 
like an incantation meant to raise the devil. Seriously, like, have you not seen a Sam Raimi movie? That's yeah. what language is in. <laughs> so, so she, Annie, gets her skeptical husband and son to come down and say the incantation and try to move a glass. And what it's happens? Very next? the craft. They're all to touch hands, mm-hmm. right? And they, you know, she has to have an item of Charlie's that is the link between the spirit world and this world. So she brings Charlie's notebook. Oh, we learn Charlie makes these incredibly creepy sort of line line drawings sketches that are sort of very childlike and creepy which she can also do from beyond the grave right you see her filling in her little notebook with drawings so they do this seance and um you know the glass is moved and it seems that charlie has entered the room we're supposed to believe because we hear a uh, cabinet breaking and then suddenly uh something seems to leap into annie's body right well actually um, the scene that happens right before that, sort of the impetus for Annie to decide to actually go through with this seance, is she has a nightmare that is the recreation of her um, attempted murder-suicide on mm. Peter, um, which starts with this like line of creepy ants leading from her and her husband's bedroom to Peter's, and then like his eyes and his mouth are like just choked with ants. Um, I really would love to interview the ant wrangler for Hereditary. <laughs> Call me if you're oh my interested. God, so many ants. Um, and uh, then it cuts to like them talking, and he asks, "Why are you so afraid of me?" And she says, "Like I never wanted to have you." And like claps a hand over her mouth, like she she didn't want to say it, but she couldn't stop herself. And they have this very frank conversation about how her mother had actually pressured her to have this child, even though she tried to have a miscarriage by any means possible. Right. Um, which you know you assume is why the no contact. Um, order between the husband and the mother-in-law eventually happened and she wasn't involved in the son's upbringing at all um but then it's like suddenly they're both just sort of like screaming and crying and then they're both wet and you're like why are they wet and then they're covered in paint thinner and then they're both on fire and then annie wakes up and it's seance time right it was such a relief that that was a dream (laughs) right didn't you feel i mean i I felt the relief that you yourself feel in life when you wake up from a nightmare and you could say oh it didn't happen but then the reality became so much (laughs) yeah you're right (laughs) Right. it's not a comforting place to land gosh so much is going on in this movie i forgot how much happened so they're sitting there they're doing the seance um charlie's spirit enters the room and then enters annie's body and suddenly one of the creepiest things is that she suddenly says mom in Charlie's voice. Mm-hmm. And suddenly Annie is Charlie and it is completely terrifying to Peter and angering to her husband because, you know, this is something he doesn't want his son exposed to. It feels like she's had him in his mind, in Gabriel Byrne's mind, the uh, Annie. This is Annie having a mental total mental break and yeah. right, exposing her son to it, which seems completely plausible to the audience as well. I mean, we're seeing all these supernatural things happen, but we're also being told this is a family full of madness. So I, I think you're supposed to be epistemologically afloat at this point in the movie as far as whether the supernatural stuff is real or not. Right. And Annie does like very manically wake up her son at 2 a.m. to be like, let's perform a seance and conjure your dead sister's spirit. So like, you know. Um, not the best parenting moment for her, perhaps. <laughs> hey, it's not setting him on fire. And yeah. <laughs> you see Peter completely flip out in the middle of the seance. I mean, don't forget, he's still 16 or 17. He's a really young person and totally not equipped to deal with something like this. And he starts yelling, he doesn't like this. He doesn't want it to go on. Please stop, mom. But she's so busy being consumed by this spirit of Charlie. She's saying, you know, what's happening, mom? Where am I? Um, You know, and it's this 
and suddenly um how does it end? The, I mean, how does Charlie leave her body? Yeah. Well, so I actually it is like the screaming match that they have of just like messy emotion of Annie being confused. Charlie, what's going on? What's going on? And Peter just screaming like, stop, mom, stop is actually directly in parallel to the dream sequence from which she just woke up in mm-hmm. which they're sort of screaming their messy emotions at one another. So it's interesting to see how that plays out in the supernatural context, um, because I think ultimately this movie is about the inescapable reality of enacting trauma onto one another and especially the anxiety that comes with being a parent and not wanting to enact your own traumas onto your children but charlie spirit leaves annie's body because steve her husband throws a glass of water on her and kind of snaps her out of it Mm -hmm. um which is sort of it's sort of unclear how that would make a spirit leave her body especially because the spirits in the movie thus far have been these sort of like dancing light figures that occupy the frame from time to time um and i think one enters annie that way um in this scene and you don't see it leave so interesting um but yeah so then steve is even more angry with annie and peter's even more afraid of annie and annie's even more unhinged and they continue on and peter goes to school which i think dana (laughs) generates one of your least favorite (laughs) moments in the film do you want to talk about the sound in this movie? Because we were talking about it before this. Yeah. Yeah. The telltale heart of this film is Charlie has this tick, uh, this um, habit of going. Uh, she she does it in the backseat of car. She does it at the funeral. She sort of does it in moments of her own anxiety. She makes this noise and that noise starts to appear um, to Peter, especially uh regularly after charlie's death and more and more after the seance yeah um, any podcast listeners who have seen the film like absolutely hate that you just did that into the mic i'm sure <laughs> oh my gosh well right after we saw it i thought i had heard it like that night and i said to my boyfriend did you just do like did you do that and he was like i think that was just the air conditioner like turning itself you should off. break up with him if he actually did <laughs> no that i know no he was like i would never do that to you like that would be crazy and i'm like yeah no please don't so now i'm i'm very afraid of that noise yeah because i mean much like that is symbolic of charlie's spirit um her the circumstances of her death haunting peter um that noise uh haunts the audience as sort of a marker of like something scary is coming i think it's just an example of how genius the sound mixing is in this movie and um a big endorsement for seeing it in the theater for that very reason because especially the tongue clicking um but also like there are these sort of insect sounds that recall like exorcist level primal fear inducing sound mixing um yeah, those things just sort of come from seemingly different areas of the theater while you're sitting there. Um, when Peter hears them, it's like you can sort of hear them next to your left ear as he hears them next to his left ear. Um, it's very immersive and visceral in terms of the audio. Yeah, and it's and, and never in a in a kind of blanket of sound way, right? It's more like you say, like small sounds being placed at the corner of your of your hearing as opposed to being overwhelmed. The soundtrack is sort of pulsating yeah. underneath. It's not it's not uh, sort of tinkling and above everything. It's very it's like a thrum. Right. Yeah. So a few things start to happen at the very end, which causes this movie to unspool very quickly. I think the last peaceful 
relatively peaceful shot we get is Gabriel Byrne, Steve, in his office. Um, and he is considering sending an email to a colleague. He's, uh, we, we learn he's, he's involved somehow in psychiatry or mental health. I learn that later. He's a psychiatrist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I never learned that. Being um, I read <laughs> yeah. that. Anyways, his, which makes the film even more interesting, right? That they have a mental health professional in the family. And not uh, to mention the in treatment shout out. Yeah. Right. Hello. It's all of a piece. Um, and I think Alex Wolf played his son on In Treatment. Are you serious? Yeah. Wow. It all comes together. Really full circle. But I, he is considering sending an email to a colleague that says he thinks his wife might be having some kind of a mental break. Um, I don't know whether or not he, does he actually not send it? No, it's like half typed and then oh, he, gets he gets the call, call from Peter's right, school. Right, because something has happened to Peter at school. Dana's least favorite scene. <laughs> Let's go into it. Well, so actually there's two moments because the first is oh, he yeah. sees the reflection and he just kind of freaks out, like goes to the bathroom and calls home and is like, I need to go home. And that's more tension between Steve and Annie because it's like, why does he think spirits are chasing him? Annie, is it because of the seance you made us all do at two right. in the morning? Right, right. Um, but then Peter goes back to school and in the same class, I think, because um, he only goes to one class through the whole movie, um, he... Yes, has a possession moment that is altogether freakier. Yeah. What exactly does happen? He essentially he goes kind of rigid. Yeah. He almost seems like he's having an epileptic fit or something like that. And uh, his face is frozen in this horrible position. And then he's this is something that's really, really scary to me, too, is sort of like compulsive self-destruction in mm. movies. And so he starts smashing his face against the desk really hard. He breaks his own nose. Right. Yeah. And finally gets to go home from school. Poor kid. I mean, trauma to the head is a th- running theme throughout this movie. I mean, decapitation, uh, sort of trying to take off your own head with a desk. I mean, it's it's all happening around the neck and the head area. Yeah. And so and so there's really a sense, I think, that it's expiation for Charlie at that moment. Right. Like he's trying to do something to himself analogous to what happened to her. Yeah. He even has a nightmare at one point that his mother's trying to pull his head off. Um, Right. So then he sees Charlie come and her head falls off and becomes a beach ball. There's several moments where it's all head. I mean, again, if this movie is a very long uh, allegory for what it's like to deal with the uh, long tail of trauma from mental illness. I think the focus on the head makes a lot of sense, right? It's a br- movie about the brain and what losing your mind, it. right? Yeah. Literally losing your mind. Right. So Peter has this horrible experience where he breaks his own nose at school. Steve, runs to get him because Annie is unavailable. She's working on her miniatures, but she's also well, no. So I think at that point she's destroyed her miniatures. And the reason she's unavailable is because she's making the attic discovery when he has to go get Alex. Because Yeah, he... this is where stuff is happening at the same time. I right. think you're right. It's two yeah. parallel horrifying things. Peter breaks his own nose at school. His dad goes to get him. And in the meantime, Annie destroys her entire studio, trashes Finds all the her book. art. What, Finds which, what the is the book? book? So... In her mother's things, where she had found that note from earlier, she also finds a book about spiritualism. Yeah, with the same symbol of a the necklace. Three ladies three, symbol. Yeah, yeah. With his, it's a symbol from a necklace um, that she was wearing, that Annie was wearing at the funeral that we learn later she had gotten from her mother. It was her mother's jewelry. The same symbol is in this book and on a, on a book. And suddenly you learn, and also a photo album. And she goes through both of those and you put together pretty quickly the pieces that her mother was a Satan worshiper. Yeah, it's basically the all of them witches moment from it, Rosemary's Baby, right? It's a very baby, Rosemary's right? Baby moment. So Rosemary's Baby. You find out that her mother was in a sort of Satan-raising club and through the photo album, the twist happens, which is where you learn that Anne Dowd's character, Joni, happened to be in this Satanist club with her mother very, and was very close to her mother. In fact, there are several pictures of her mother and Joan together hugging as part of this Satanist club. Yeah. And I think actually that sort of 
um convenient photo album finding where she's collected all her like best satanist memories <laughs> um the box should say like a cult manual yeah right? like Pure, yeah there are even pictures of her i think i assume that the ritual is sort of her becoming a bride to this like demon king that they worship but she's like in a wedding dress and they're like throwing gold coins on her and she right might have... and it's part of that she sees a photo an illustration in the spiritualism or in the satanism book that says spoils to the conjurer and the same kind of gold coins are raining down and then she sees a picture of her mother so we have a feeling we don't know what's going on but we have a feeling that her mother feels that she was a conjurer of satan in some way or that she provided a conduit for satan to return to earth we don't know how that's all going to connect but her mother was very connected to this conjuring ritual right but Um, i I think the actual sequence is she finds her mother's black bloated headless body in the attic why did she go in the attic of the house she she sees like a few flies from around there and she's like oh like what's that about <laughs> and she i think given the circumstances of my life right now it would be an excellent idea to investigate <laughs> that right yeah and so she like opens the attic door and of course like a whole swarm of flies comes out and so i think that actually precedes the finding of the very convenient like expositional texts um, and there's little cues uh, that there's a dead body in the house placed throughout the movie because at one point Steve asks about the smell in the house. Do you mm-hmm, remember? Yeah. Um, then, you know, I, she keeps having dreams about insects. So when the flies come, it's like, oh, maybe it's all coming together. So she goes up to the attic, which is one of these classic horror movie attics where you have to pull it down. You know, that it comes out of the ceiling. You have to pull the ladder down with a little handle. And when she goes up, she sees a bloated distended blackened body in a nightgown decapitated decapitated who we assume to be her mother and on the wall where her mother is uh above where her mother is lying is the same symbol from the satanist book and the necklace so it's all starting to come together except not because i don't know if i understand anything that happens for the rest of the movie so i'm really this is the part i think to me the weakest part of the movie in a way in that it's this movie has set set up so many rich themes and conflicts Mm -hmm. and potential twists and ways for it to come together and i'm not sure that the last 10 minutes of it quite live up to um i mean i feel like i'd be walking out of this saying like this is one of the great horror movies of the decade and everybody must see it if it weren't for the very ending do either of you feel that way as well i am so easily sold on style and i think that the last 10 or 15 minutes of the film deliver some of the like most eye-popping horror shots I've ever seen that I can't possibly. (laughs) It's true. I think I'm sort of in agreement with both of you. I think from a plot level, it sort of goes into the ridiculous, which I kind of... And the familiar. Which I have a little bit appreciated because I was scared out of my wits through the whole movie. And when it became sort of a more Rosemary's Baby typical situation where I was like, oh, it's about demons. Suddenly I was like able to be like, cool, cool. So it's not just about like family pain and right. the decapitation of a very young girl. Like this was all faded from the beginning. I mean, we hear about fate throughout the movie, right? I think this is an important thing. First of all, the dollhouse metaphor or the miniatures metaphor, which is some sort of like hand of fate yeah, yeah. manipulating all these little pieces. And when Peter's in class, they're discussing Greek tragedy. And, um, you know, they have this this discussion in class where Peter is taking part about whether or not um, the main this character and they're reading Greek drama. It's more sad that his tragedy was fated or if he was master of his own will. So we have all this sort of digressions throughout the movie about fate and whether or not you can control your will. So when I learned in a way that there was like a demon hand guiding all this, I felt a little bit of relief. Yeah, right. I, I, but, but I guess to me, the relief equals the disappointment. It's that right. classic thing in a monster movie where the scariest part is when an actual scaly monster that's a guy in a puppet suit or a CGI creature comes and starts chasing 
the protagonist around, right? I mean, it's really hard for a horror movie to deliver on its promises in that way. And I'm not sure this movie totally does, but I understand the relief. Yeah, I mean, I do think that Astor sort of undermines the most interesting part of his work, which is that it is, I would say it's almost just like the most wrenching melodrama you've ever seen. And that's what makes it so horrifying. And then it goes into traditional horror and it's like, okay, I'm literate in like a cult scariness and I'm like illiterate in yeah, overwhelming family pain. Right. I think my boyfriend walked out and was like, I thought that was going to be like a sad drama. It just turned out to be a really scary screwball comedy, which it's not what it was, but it was just a funny comment because of the very way it ends. I right. mean, it, it suddenly starts going very fast and furious at the very end. So we can get through that. So after she finds the body, Steve has gone to pick up uh, Peter because he broke his own nose. Annie, you know, frantically runs to Steve and says, my mother's dead body is in the attic. He doesn't believe her, but he goes up. And in fact, in what I thought was a shocking moment, the body really is there because I thought he was going to find that she had also just had a break and she was making this up. The body's there and immediately he accuses her. He goes, you dug up your mother's body. I'm putting this all together. I know. Gabriel Byrne, again, like chief emotional suppressor of this family. He's just like, I can't believe this shit. I can't believe you would like put that up there. And it's like, I'm sorry. (laughs) But but wait a second. Is he wrong? I mean, isn't it possible? When he said that, I thought maybe that's how it's all going to come together. You know, maybe somehow this is going to be like a... um Angel Heart kind of thing where Tony Collette did it all herself right. while sleepwalking and or something like that. And decapitating her own mother's dead body. Uh, so that's going on. Um, so they have this sort of denouement between Annie and Steve um, where she says, look, this has all gone too far. I brought Charlie's spirit back. The spirit has become malevolent. We're all doomed in this house. The only way I can um, kill this spirit is by also killing myself. Because earlier, we missed this, but she had tried to burn Charlie's sketchbook because the sketchbook she saw filling with pages of Peter, uh, drawings of Peter with his eyes crossed out, yeah. which seemed to be like she thought the spirit had a malevolent. Again, if it's this, Annie did it all herself. It's a very scary thought to think that she drew entire sketchbook full of pictures of her son with his eyes crossed out, which is totally one possibility that keeps haunting me. But she decides she's going to burn the sketchbook. And when she tries to do it, her own arm catches on fire. So she believes that in order to destroy the spirit, because she was the one who conjured it, she has to destroy herself. So she tells Steve running downstairs, I'm going to burn this book. And no, she, she begs him to burn it for right, her. She says, and I'm going to immolate when this happens. But that's the only way this can happen. Basically, I'm sacrificing myself to save you two. Yeah. And it's this very effective um like, you know, if Tony Collette does get nominated for the Oscar for this, which so many critics are pulling for, um, I I feel like that this should be the clip where she's begging Steve to burn the book because she's like, please, 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 baby, like, you're the love of my life. Like, I've never loved anyone more than you and Peter and Charlie. And like, it's just so wrenching and real. Um, and Gabriel Byrne is just sort of as always, the conduit for Tony Collette's incredible acting. Um, he says he's going to call the police. Yeah, he's like, I, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going to call the police. Um, but that was a great impression. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You don't need to say it. I say it. But so through this confrontation, she eventually throws the sketchbook into the fire anyway. And, you know, she's expecting that she'll burst into flame and that'll be the end of it. But actually what happens is he bursts into flame and she's just sort of staring at him in like slack jawed horror. And then she literally goes slack jawed and it's implied that the spirit has finally overtaken her. 
And it's then the scariest thing. She's screaming in horror and nothing, by the way, like you said, I think there's a lot of awards buzz for Tony Collette with good reason. Nothing is scarier than seeing Tony Collette be scared. Her mouth is just so elastic and she's able to contort her face into the best shapes. And this is one of the scariest moments because she looks completely horrified by the fact that her husband is burning alive. And then suddenly she's not so horrified. She looks at it sort of with a amusement or or if anything, just a detachment. Like, oh, I'm just going to watch this as a spectator sport. Oh. It is so scary. Like, the light goes out from behind her eyes. I think there's um, actually, like, a snap in the soundtrack. Even. Yeah. And, I and and you know, this is where things start to get murky. But wait, but, can I freeze yeah. for just a second on Gabriel Byrne catching fire? So it was in... <laughs> <laughs> Great sentence. Sure. <laughs> so within the logic of the Satanist cult, right? Yeah. If we just look at the part of the story that's like a lady had a Satanist cult and she passed a curse down to her family, why does he catch fire right then? Is it because she threw the book in? Is it because he has lighter fluid it's on him? It's because I believe he needed to get out of the way for the ritual to be completed. He was this obstacle for, for this demon to come back into the world. And so he, he was clearly presenting a problem. So no matter what in that scene, Grandma was going to make sure that Gabriel Byrne got out of the way. I mean, listen, Gabriel Byrne's been in the way since the beginning. He right. was the one who had the no con, con, uh, contact rule. Right. No, I understand why Satan would want him out of the way. <laughs> I guess I just, within the logic of Tony Collette saying it, it's very important that you throw it into fire and then I will catch fire. The fact that the opposite happens. Well, I mean, this is all part of, I guess, why the end. This part of me wants both tracks to make sense. I right. want there to be a satisfying mental illness track and I want there to be a satisfying, like, objective Satan exists track. And the yeah. Gabriel Byrne catching fire is one moment where you're like, how would she have done it if it was just her having a break, right? But part of me also believes that there were a few signs that you could interpret it that way because you see that she has a bottle of lighter fluid with her when she's um, carrying the notebook downstairs and we don't know what she did to the floor beforehand or how she may have, you know, prepared for this situation. And we also know from her own admission that Tony Collette's character, Annie, has tried to light people on fire in the past. It was one... Um, things she did when she was sleepwalking and thought about killing people right. that way. Yeah. I will say um, that I'm like so not here for a reading of this movie in which Tony Collette is the engineer of all the bad things in her family. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really appreciate that the film did not push that. Yeah. Um, that it's all, you know, up to interpretation in that way, because that's such a like tired horror movie trope is basically just that like bad moms oh yeah um, and that would undermine literally the entire well, i mean everything that's great about the first hour of the movie right which is the fact that there's this diffuse blame floating yes, and all this guilt and, and I, shame and i believe in that moment where steve catches fire actually that's aster telling us that that's that the reading about her being the architect is not what's going on right there's really no way for her to have architected that that's completely she's standing 10 feet away from him that's like a supernatural thing that happens and the minute that her face goes slack that's when we're supposed to realize that whatever demon has been unleashed here paymon hail paymon <laughs> no <laughs> no i she did it. um has been totally uh you know in her body now so things start to get extremely real and this is where the shot comes in that I think you were mentioning when you said it's one of your favorite horror movie shots of all time the bed- I, the bedroom scene right this is also where I think Alex Wolf's nom- Oscar nomination should be on the table mm. because he just goes balls to the wall with his performance like in the last 10 minutes because basically Peter wakes up from <laughs> a Vicodin haze yeah from the nose breaking adult unconsciousness and um, you know something's off in the house in the creepy recesses of this dark house and um he's looking around and suddenly tony collette is 
spider straddled against the corner of his ceiling. Um, and again, it's not there's no like sudden string cue in the music to alert us to that. Like we just know. It's almost like a Where's Waldo. Like you couldn't really see her. Yeah. She's sort of in shadow. She's in this white night pajamas Eileen Fisher type set and she's <laughs> you know for the re- for the end of the movie she sort of goes it's very dignified nutty in linen but she is up there in this in this sort of like you said spider hanging on the wall above his bed and the best part when we saw it in the theater because Astor holds that scene for like a good minute worse people seeing her yeah, I heard people. It was like, oh my god! People started screaming, when you realize and people didn't know what each other yeah. was screaming about because you couldn't. So then everyone starts furtively looking around, and when and they spot her, and then the shrieks were amazing. Yeah, yeah. you're right. The staggered shrieking was really a good part. Yeah, of the ending. And then Peter sort of turns. And, Tony and Collette, laughing. Like, I'm just. I'm sorry to interrupt, but people oh, yeah. were laughing at their own. The fear. nervous laughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Lena. No, yeah. I mean, that's another reason why it's so great to see in the theater is just because so many of the beats are highlighted by audience reaction. Yeah. Um. But so then, one of my favorite like cinematic moments in the film is when Peter sort of turns and then Tony Collette's like possessed animalistic form like wall runs out of his room it's super insect like yeah it's creature she's become a creature for sure yeah and then he runs downstairs uh to try to get out of the house and again she is above him well Um, so he discovers his father's corpse first and he's like okay something is really wrong he starts going into this sort of like teenage panic mode that he has been vacillating wildly between just like stoicism and that throughout the entire film and then um tony collette is again perched in the corner of the ceiling very spider-like and then he looks and she's like in the recesses of the dark in the corner of the room and then finally we get our like musical cue that's like almost jump scary and it's like shit is going down and she charges at him this is the super horror part of the movie this last 10 minutes of the movie if you're a fan of being of jump scares of the violins that sound very violent of the running just away from the demon this will be your favorite part of the movie and to me i have to say although i agree that the shot the shot you're talking about that's one of your favorites in horror movies is the one where she's in the corner and you have to find her right is that that's the one and the wall run Right. I mean, I agree that that's absolutely terrifying. But I I started to get disappointed in the action, I would say, shortly after that, because then I felt like it it just joined a familiar set of occult tropes that we've seen in many movies. Well, I, I feel bad saying this. I wish I loved people. Oh, well, yeah. Right. And I'm totally disappointed. OK, let's well, talk so, about the yeah. naked people. So he runs up to the attic to try to get away from his mother, who's now chasing him through the house, which, again, I found very scary, um, but a little bit ridiculous. So I felt both fear and relief at the same time because it was the catharsis. It's like finally happening. Right. 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 The Dana Ma is here. Like, this is the end. He runs up to the attic. He locks himself in there. Tony Cut is banging her head on the attic door. She's clutching the ceiling. Yeah. Again, very supernatural and animalistic, banging her head on the door. But in the doorway of sort of the living room kitchen area before they run upstairs is um, this tall, like very Aryan man um, who's just full frontal nudity, naked, um, just smiling creepily. Yeah. And when he gets up to the attic, he sees more naked old people. Yeah. Which, again, is very uh, reminiscent of Rosemary's Baby, the scene in which they conjure Satan. Right. You know, when Mia Farrow is being impregnated with the Satan's child, you see all, you know, naked Ruth Gordon 
Right. There's a really, there's a very clear Rosemary's Baby reference there. And I also, I couldn't help but think of Get Out as well. You know, I mean, just when there's sort of the revelation of this cult of old people who need a young person for their Mm. ritual. Exactly. So he's up in the attic and sees the spot where his, you know, the flies are there. The the grandmother's body is no longer there, though. Mysteriously, it has disappeared. And he hears this very wet, um, sort of like almost crunching sound. Um, And the audience hears that, too, sort of in the air above um, us. And he looks up and Tony Collette is just sort of levitating in air, having her like Winona Ryder in Black Swan moment where she's just like rhythmically stabbing herself in the neck. Or isn't she like, this is so horrible to break down the, the weapons, but isn't she sawing at her neck with a piano I, wire I or something I couldn't quite like tell that? if she was sawing her own head off or, or just had stabbing herself. Yeah, it was hard um, to tell, but she was trying to self-decapitate is what was going ab- on. <laughs> Unquestionably. Unquestionably self-decapitating is a really... Decapitation, as we've said before, is the theme of this movie and she did not disappoint at the end. And, yeah. and she succeeds, right? Then, then right. well, we don't know until the very end because he runs out the window out of fear. Right. Yeah. So so he's sort of entranced by just the utter horror that is seeing his his mother do that. Um and then suddenly he turns to the left and that's where the other creepy old full frontal naked people are. Right. And, and then in horror he jumps out the window and lands in the garden. And it's implied that he has maybe even died during that because one of these light spirits like flies down and possesses his body and then he gets up sort of slack-jawed. I think the implication um which you later learn is correct is that that was Charlie's sort of little light um orb because he I think Alex Wolf again plays it so well here. He has sort of this sort of like slack-jawed awe that um Millie Shapiro as Charlie like wore in similar scenes like walking through their front yard in the very beginning of the movie. Yeah. Um and so he sees his mother. Um, no, he goes to or, the treehouse. Yeah. Well, but some body is like levitating. In, I think yeah, it's the his mother's, mother's body, body. headless body is levitating yeah. into the treehouse. Yes. And so he decides, yeah. why not to go <laughs> up there and check out what that's all about? Well, no, it's not him anymore. It's yeah. Charlie. He, so well, he, it's she is like, that's where I'm yeah. headed. Yeah. yeah. So the final scene of the movie takes place in this treehouse. And. Big surprise, Ann Dowd is there. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> is she naked? Is she one of the naked people? No, she, she's she's also in tasteful linen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but her hair is like wild and hippie free. Yeah. Um, so when uh, Peter slash Charlie slash Paymon, which we're about to learn about, um, gets up to the treehouse, he sees a series of three dead bodies, one of whom is the grandmother's body, which has now been positioned alongside his mother's headless body, both of which are sort of kneeling, well, almost praying to a uh, sort of a an idol, which has been constructed, which, oh, ready gosh. for this, is a statue of the demon Paimon with the severed head of his young sister, Charlie, on top, wearing a crown. That's what's going on in the treehouse. Weeks right. old, rotted head. Yeah. It's reminiscent of the doll that Charlie made. Yes, it's it looks like outsider art. It it it's you know uh, in, incredibly scary and moving, but it also looks like an art piece um, that you'd see at the MoMA or something. And everything in the treehouse is bathed in this sort of eggy, beatific light mm-hmm. that seems as if it's a it's a sort of religious something religious is happening. Yeah, the treehouse has also gotten conveniently huge. Um, expansive yeah there are like 20 people in it but um yeah this sculpture uh she's holding like a staff and she has a crown on um and and dowd 
you know, sort of recites this, like, hail Paimon, we're so glad that you're finally going to achieve your utmost form. And again, super interesting uh, gender moment uh, here where she says, um, we're going to correct your previous female form or something like that, because through the super conveniently like highlighted and annotated um, <laughs> Satanism 101 text that <laughs> Annie found in her mother's things, um, it mentions that Paimon, the eighth demon king of hell, requires a male host um, and specifically like a very vulnerable body. And so you see like the mental and emotional degradation of Peter throughout this entire film. Um, and his vulnerability, I think, is one of the most visceral aspects of like your viewing experience. And so then to see him as the most penetrable demon host um, makes quite a bit of sense. Oh, it's so I'm, it's, I'm just realizing as you as you say that, that really the kind of terror of the end or the sadness of the end is that you realize that it was about Peter all along. Right. Mm-hmm. That, well, that, yeah. And it was the hereditary was, you know, I, I mean, the way I interpret the end where they all say hail Paymon, you know, and Peter gets to wear this. So Andow takes the crown off of Charlie's desiccated head. It's horrible. And puts it on this new Peter Paymon uh, you know his his skull again another very the significance of the head cannot be understated here um overstated sorry and you know he she takes this crown she puts it on peter's head they say all all these old naked people say hail came on <laughs> and that's the end of the movie and it's a very silly in a way but i also interpreted it right away that what is hereditary is he was always destined to be the host for this demon. And that was promised by his grandmother that in a way his grandmother had done some literal deal with the devil and had said, you can have this child. Yeah. Right. So does that mean, (laughs) does that mean that means so literal, but does that mean that everything that happened was fated by the grandmother? I mean, for example, was there free will? Obviously there's no way to answer this, but was there free will involved in Peter driving while high back from the party while his sister is having the anaphylactic shot. You know, I mean, was that all fated to happen, essentially? I think the film definitely wants you to believe that it was because of the initial note that Ellen leaves for Annie that says, you know, um, all of our grief will be worth the spoils in the end or something like that. Um, Yeah, I think she definitely seems like the kind of lady who would sacrifice Charlie to make this happen, especially because, again, the gender of it all. Um, she, It's stated in a conversation between Annie and Charlie early on in the movie that it, Charlie like very nervously says, like, Grandma wanted me to be a boy. Um, and Annie's brother, who committed suicide and was schizophrenic, was named Charles. Um, so and said he thought his mother was trying to put people inside him. Yeah. So I, I really interpret that as, um, the grandmother not caring about Charlie's, uh, sort of earthly vessel because it's female, um, and being willing to dispose of it, but preserve the spirit, uh, as a host for Paymon. Right. We believe it's happening. I believed if we're to believe that this entire demon angle is to be taken totally literally, that what happened was when Ellen, the grandmother, died, she quite literally went to hell, right? And that's where she was controlling things from and decided that now was the time to enact the plan and and Paymon didn't like being in Charlie's body. We also have to assume that Charlie was given this, the spirit of Paymon um, early on because we learned later that Paymon didn't like being in Charlie's body. So we knew that Paymon was there, um, you know, and that's why Ellen wanted to nurse 
the baby and raise it as her own because she believed this to be one of the demon children of Satan, basically. Um, and so we're supposed to believe that Charlie's death was fated, that it was time to get rid of this body to literally take the head off it so that something could, ex- ex- you know, get out into the world and find Peter's head, which is just a very scary thought. But I think sort of the the brilliance of this film, whether Astor intended it or not, is that, you know, it's ultimately about the inescapability of your family trauma, like being enacted upon uh, your own children. And I think that that's like very representative in the dynamic between Annie and Peter, but especially like Annie, despite all her little machinations and the fact that she literally makes a living off of manipulating tiny figurines of her own Mm -hmm. life and experience, ultimately she falls prey to all of her mother's um, much larger machinations. Um, And so it's like, who's the real puppet master here? is ultimately her mother. And our children just their parents' dolls in a way. Yeah. You know, just I mean, your miniature. Yeah, that, I mean yeah. to me that is a much, much more terrifying question to end on than, you know, are there naked cult members in a treehouse? I, totally I mean do you, agree. do you feel yeah. a little bit of deflation at the idea that the end has so many familiar images from horror? Absolutely. But it was also still so pleasurable to me um, visually that I I was sort of willing to dismiss it. And I also sort of like the film's shagginess. And I, I, you know, appreciate that Aster like is a first time writer director. That is incredible because um, he because he has a real two shorts or hand. something yeah. before this, and then this is his first film. So it's it's incredibly accomplished for a first film. And I think in a way, even though there is just a very straightforward way to read this film. He coded in a lot of other meanings, as you're saying, that I really admire. I mean, yes, I was deflated by the idea that at the end it may have all been about Anne Dowd trying to bring Paymon back into her world. <laughs> um, but I also did interpret it as this really elegant allegory about family secrets and the ways that we process them. And I think the miniatures is such an interesting way to do that, because if you think about the first shot of the scene, like you said, it's going into a dollhouse that becomes real. Part of me thought maybe this movie is supposed to be interpreted as it was all done in a dollhouse. I mean, it was it was a pure manipulation. Nothing. None of this was real. If anything, maybe it was a meta commentary on making movies, how you manipulate people while they're watching horror, how you take people into this world of figurines and you move them around and you scare people and, you know, they you know, they leave changed because of something you did. I mean, I thought there were so many different ways you could yeah, interpret it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, so the ending to me, it, it doesn't quite live up to the beauty of that beginning. I mean, yeah. I almost wish, I mean, now I'm doing like a, a script rewrite of a movie <laughs> that's already made, but I almost wish the camera had somehow pulled out and it be a dollhouse again or something, mm-hmm. that there was a little bit more of a framing device where the ultimate horror wasn't like, now you're the eighth king of hell, want want the end, right? right? But again, I think that Astor sort of sows these very brilliant seeds about uh, like, filmmaking as the ultimate manipulation um, in some of the techniques that he uses. One of my favorite things is these cut scenes that happen throughout the movie that are match cuts um, from one scene to the next. Um, There's one of the exterior of the house that is sort of like the lights of the world going on and off from day to night. Um, And there's one that's sort of Peter sitting on his bed like catatonic and then Peter sitting at school catatonic yeah um and to me that was sort of like astor being like it's day now because i want it to be he's at school now because i want him to be like i don't have to show you how that happened well and i think the first what happened in the first half of half an hour of the movie was so manipulative i mean there's nothing more manipulative from a director point of view i mean i remember thinking when i saw that i was like how 
dare you, Aster, right. kill this little girl at the beginning of the movie, just when I was starting to be very interested in her. I mean, Not was, to mention Millie Shapiro. We haven't talked about her performance at all, but she's unbelievable in this role. So right? compelling. She has almost no lines. She's in maybe... 25 minutes of the movie total, plus a couple of ghostly appearances. And uh, and she's really unforgettable. Her face has this kind yeah. of old woman quality that's very demonic. And, she's uh, very Linda Blair iconic. And, yeah. and she's, but yet she seems very vulnerable and like a child as well. You yeah. know, she doesn't play it as like a, a dead eyed zombie in any way. I, I saw her play Matilda on Broadway oh in, my in the Roll Doll musical. And uh, I saw her twice actually. And she was absolutely amazing as Matilda. She's got a great voice. I know. She sings beautifully. And, and she played Matilda with so much darkness, you know, with so, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, Matilda is in some ways a little bit like Charlie. She's a psychic kid, you know, right. she's kind of outside of the world and experiencing reality in a different way. And, uh, anyway, it was, it, it's kind of great to imagine her going on to well, have a career. And I think the last sort of interesting thing we can talk, uh, touch on that maybe Astor didn't intend, but you've, you've said a lot, Lena, is that the concept of gender in this movie is very interesting, which is like, the women's bodies are all rejected, you know, um, and or or self-rejected and they sacrifice their own bodies so that they can bring this ultimate male king back to life. You know, uh, Ellen apparently has like done some crazy pact with the you know, this is the grandmother has done some pact with the devil when she was younger, where she's like been married to him or something. We're 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 made to believe that through the photos, um, you know, Charlie's body is sacrificed. Annie self decapitates um you know and dowd is sort of pulling all the strings but and is a woman but ultimately the entire point is to sort of like bring this virile male energy back into the world and yet yet it's so awful to be that boy right i mean it's it it ends up being this terrible ending about you know like masculinity is not a triumph for anyone including the person who's crowned the king of hell right Mm. and there's this sense that he also has been put through this horrible experience, like everyone's humanity is devalued by that by that exact pact. Right. Well, and, by I the thought, devaluing and, of all and the women. you know, looking back, I, I don't know what you guys think about this, but I definitely thought there was part of the movie that I thought was extraneous and kind of cheesy, which was this very tiny subplot where Peter has a crush on a girl at school. Right. And, you know, I thought, oh, this is just useful because he has someone to talk to at the party and therefore get it distracted. And Charlie can eat the cake. And, you know, but it actually becomes a thread that I think is pretty interesting throughout the film. We see at some point he's looking at her Facebook um, in his room. And then later she is in the class where he tries to break his own nose and she's very horrified. And there's this sense that even as a sort of young teenage male, he's having trouble connecting with women and understanding how to talk to them. And they're scary to him. And there's definitely a sort of undertone of how hard it is to be a boy also. Or even the scene that Lena mentions when they're smoking pot under the bleachers and talking about girls. There's really not any sense that um, that there's a commu- any communication possible between the two genders in that scene. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I also think that this film has incredibly interesting things to say about like bad or toxic um, motherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, Dana as a mother... I'm interested to know how sort of you felt about the themes of like anxiety producing imperfection in motherhood and also the idea that like, you know, the ways in which your parents fucked you up, it's impossible to escape enacting those things upon your own children. Um, I mean, you know, those things are somewhat realer for you than they are for me. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I feel like whether you had a child or not, you could relate to the the questions of family that are asked in this movie because it's about the relationship between generations but um but certainly yeah i mean as a parent i think to me the hardest scene is the one that rachel mentioned 
when we first when Tony Collette first finds out the news, mm. you know, um, I don't know. I think I kind of reject the idea that being a parent gives you any different moral insight into anything. <laughs> Maybe it just gives you more things to be scared about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like for me, probably the most effective scenes happen um, when I'm watching Peter um, because I have sort of been like in his position of just feeling emotionally overwhelmed and not knowing like where to put that um, like fairly recently. Um, I'm like in my early 20s now, but, you know, teenage teenage dumb is not that far behind. Um, so, you know, he's sort of gasping for breath and like mid or on the edge of a panic attack, like almost at all times. Um, and I just felt that so bodily. And yeah, and he doesn't really have parents i mean mm. that he can connect with i mean even there's this one tiny throwaway line where steve you know they get home from school one day and steve tells peter to register for the sat or something sat tutoring and it's this strange thing where it's like so much tragedy has happened in this family and they're they're talking about the most banal things like he's like just remember to do it because the sats are coming up like there's such disconnection and things left unsaid and you know we learn very you know that that peter has already had this horrible experience Experience in his youth where his mother literally tried to kill him right. and she's apologized for it of course and says I'm a sleepwalker but of, you know that's terrifying and it, you never shake it and you're like well at one point you know I was a, a breath away from being killed by my mother it's very Freudian so yeah I mean there's a lot of Freud I mean and it it doesn't seem like an accident that Aster brings in the text of Greek drama. <laughs> yeah. The Oedipal hole. You know, he brings in Iphigenia specifically. Yeah. You know, to this About story. a sacrificed daughter. Exactly. Right? And and I think there is a sense where it's very like, yeah, the connection to your parents is uh, unbreakable and hereditary, but also at times, uh, you know, being unparented can be the most frightening thing, too. Yeah. You mentioned sacrificed daughters in connection to the Iphigenia myth that's um, being taught to Peter at school, I think it's interesting. Like, is Charlie the true sacrifice daughter or is Annie? You know, um, and I think the way in which the family or the film sort of divides the family by gender right from jump when, you know, they have their sort of, how are you feeling today, son? How are you feeling today, daughter? Check ins at the end of the first day of the funeral. Um, I think those lines sort of continue and are carried throughout the film in very interesting ways. Well, and I have to believe it was Annie because in the end, I think Ellen, the mother, was the one who set this entire path in motion. And I think we're supposed to learn by seeing her obituary at the very beginning that her death was the catalyst for all of this pain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this was the reason that this plan started getting enacted. I'm sure Ellen basically said to these Satanists, when I die, that's when we're a go, you know, and right. Please murder my entire family. Right. And, you know, that's and has has given that up to be the bride of whatever, you know, in the afterlife. I mean, that, that's what I sort of got from that text. The, again, that highlighted exposition that we so conveniently found in the in the boxes. But I think, you know, what you realize is that Annie didn't want to have this baby. Her mother made her. Mm. And then, you know, when she had Charlie, she says she gave her to her mother in that grief group, which I think is an interesting way to put it, which is saying, basically, I was at that point completely being controlled and manipulated by my mother to have a second child. I didn't even really parent that child. My mother did. And so the miniatures, I think, is she's a disassociated. At that point, she's been given so much. This is her way of basically like checking regaining out. control. But also, yeah, too. It's both disassociation and regaining control, which is really interesting of a life she has no control over. Mm. 
Yeah. Wow. I mean, <laughs> there's so much. There's so much. Hereditary. I'm, I'm, I'm realizing, Lena, that I should see it again a second time as you did to get some of uh, you, your recall of it is incredible. But I honestly don't know if I can handle seeing it again right now. It's one of those things where I want to recommend that people see it, but I also sort of know that I am. I'm good. Yeah. I, would say, I would say that if if you understand horror movies, if, if some part of you feels the need to experience horror movies and and you're not just destroyed by them, then yeah, see it. It's one of the best horror movies of the year so far, for sure. Yeah, it is honestly, um, at least for the moment, entered my like top 20 favorite films, I would say. Um, wow. And it is funny, like trying to recommend it to people because, you know, it's like it really spoke to me because of X horrible thing and Y horrible thing and Z horrible thing. But it's, you know, one of the most interesting and best movies I've seen in a while. Um I had similar problems recommending Requiem for a Dream to other people. Right. But I think you can tell people if they're thinking of seeing this movie, even after we spoiled it all for them, that you will be scared and you will have a communal experience with other people in the audience, as I certainly did. We were all laughing and screaming at the same time. And it was that part of it was a blast. Yeah. The second time I saw it, though, I was pretty much not scared at all um, when I knew what was coming. Um, it really does play out like like a family melodrama much more explicitly when you're not being manipulated by the film as easily. Right. Um, so I think having that perspective on it is really interesting. <laughs> so basically your, your prescription for people who are really scared to see it even once is to see, see it twice. twice. <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome, Ari Aster. <laughs> All right. Well, Lena, Rachel, thank you so much for coming in to talk thank Hereditary you. with me. I've had new thoughts in my mind even more than I did walking out of the movie. And uh, it was great. So come back and spoil again soon. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, Dana. And thank you to all of you for listening. You can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like our show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows you would like us to spoil or any other feedback to share, send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. For Rachel Syme and Lena Wilson, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.